Football on Off the Ball. With Sky. Watch Premier League, Women's Super League, EFL, Scottish Premiership, and much more. Live on Sky Sports. Yeah, welcome back. It's Richie McCormick here with you. Delighted to say we are joined on the line by Callum Jacobs, the editor of a brand new book just released today called A New Formation, How Black Footballers Shaped the Modern Game. As I say, just out today. So first of all, first and foremost, Callum, happy release day to you. How does it feel to have the, the product finally out there in the world? Um, yeah, it feels very good. Um, it takes a very long time to, to, to get a book to this stage. There are so many steps you have to... You have to move through and it feels very gratifying now because there are periods in the journey where um you almost feel like chucking it in really because it's just so hard but um yeah we're here now and i'm really happy so yeah yeah i'd, I'd say for yourself it's all the more difficult because it's, it's obviously a series of essays and it's not just yourself that that's been involved in it so you're kind of master of your own destiny in a sense when you're just writing a book from start to finish but you know drawing as many uh, influences and, and different uh, people as you have done for this it can be a bit trickier yeah, it's almost like um, like herding cats, is what my <laughs> friends said to me at the very beginning. Um, you have to have a different approach uh, sometimes for every writer. Some writers want to uh, sit and talk to you on the phone for three hours about their essay. Other writers don't want really any input or communication from you because they, um, they work like that. And yeah, other people are a bit more collaborative. But um, you, you, I've edited in the past, so I, I kind of came at it with an editor's hat on. Okay. And understood the brief, but yeah, you're completely right. It, 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 you're kind of waiting on other people sometimes as well, but it's all part of it. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting experience. Um, where was the genesis of the book for you? Like, what was what was what was your jumping off point? I guess was there a particular piece you read that said that this might you know fit together with something else like this, or if we discovered, or sorry, if we if we discussed or went down this certain pathway with a certain player. It might be of interest and it might make a decent piece. What was, for you was the genesis of the book? Um, to be honest with you, so my background my background is uh, in editorial. I actually founded a magazine. It's called um, Caracom. Um, it explores football in the same way that the book does. And really what I wanted to do or what I was seeking to do was kind of expand on what I'd done in that, which is to... Uh, sometimes use use black players as avatars to discuss broader themes and ideas that speak particularly to the black experience. Um, and so I think the genesis of the book really it, it stemmed from my work there and the players uh, I chose that that feature in the book or are written about that came to me um, uh, slightly more slowly and it, it was kind of based on things that. Uh, some of those players had done or said or things that they represented um, if, if if that makes sense because mm. there's quite a few players um, featured so different ideas for different players came to me at um, different times probably there's so many different strands I guess that you could have you could have gone down like you say from the off in this book that it's not a book about racism this is essentially a book um, you know celebrating in some instances in some instances highlighting in some instances telling, just simply telling the story of, of certain black figures within football um, but it must have been a difficult process to whittle down who you're actually going to talk about here because uh, the spectrum of you know black influences on football has grown exponentially um, from we think about what would have been the mid to late 70s when, when black footballers first became you know prevalent in English football to now whereby you know, it, it it's it's just a much broader sphere than than what it used to be. To actually have to whatever about coalescing your your contributors 
coalescing your subjects uh, was a difficult prospect, I'd imagine, as well. Yeah, it definitely was. What I what I tried to do as well was was avoid um, retelling obvious or prevalent narratives that people probably felt that they already knew. Hmm. Um, so, for example, somebody like Danny Rose features in the book, um, and people might not expect him to feature in a book about the formation of uh, of black culture or influencing the black cultural landscape that we kind of all inhabit to different extents now and I don't think maybe that his story or what he represented or things that he said had been told so that was one aspect of it as I said kind of chronicling players who you maybe overlooked because they're not as glamorous or big names but they still mean something they still represent something and you've got someone like Anita Shante in the book as well and she's won everything in the women's game that there is to win but maybe her name doesn't come up frequently enough and maybe we hear about Eniola Aluko um, or Alex Scott and this isn't to say we shouldn't but there are other characters who are distinct and do mean something um, to people but then in the case of somebody like Ian Wright I feel like we all know Ian Wright's story in outline and he's uh, he, he he makes up a large part of where we are now. I think you can kind of trace the behavior or the cultural expressions of, of a lot of black players today. It's kind of rooted in the way he expanded um, black identity in this country. So you think about just the haircuts he had, the goal celebrations he would attempt, just his general exuberance, being his full authentic self, bringing that to the pitch is part of the reason why You've got Jesse Lang, uh, Jesse Lingard, rather doing the moonwalk and stuff like that. It's it's part of being say, saying, you know, I'm black. This is my culture, and I can bring it into the game. But what we did with Ian Wright, rather than tell the story that everyone knows, is look at his career post retirement, how he's how he's kind of ascended to the place that he's in now. And it wasn't an easy road by any measure. But now, what he means to younger black people who never watched him play, he's mm-hmm arguably even more relevant now or, or or his relevancy hasn't diminished and we looked at you know his tv career which is unprecedented the uh, the place he holds i suppose um in the in the imagination in the in the subconscious of 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 um, britain today um and then we tried to do that oh I, yeah the contributors and i tried to do that with everyone that we spoke to or wrote about was to basically say hey, there's another story here. There's a deeper story here. There's a perspective here that uh, might have been missed um, and we want to tell that story. Focusing on Wright, like it's a, it's an incredible journey and it's an incredible growth that he's been on because I remember when he first retired and translated then into the sphere of, of being a pundit, there was a slight suggestion that he was there as the kind of court gesture and he was there purely to bring a bit of levity to things. But recalling, as it was in the book, we're going back to 2018, whereby he's being asked to talk about the issue of race and he's being given his 50 seconds, essentially, on Match of the Day or in the live coverage of the match, whatever it was, Gary Lineker thrown to him anyway, that he really hit upon something deeper than I think anybody was really expecting. And it shows that there's a, a maturity there that he wasn't necessarily given credit for, I don't think, during his playing days. And there's a maturity of thought that was there that I don't think he was given credit for during his playing days. And that really has evolved on camera over the last 10, 15 years, really. Exactly. I think he op- he occupies a unique position in, in many senses. First of all, I would say he is definitely uh, 
definitely somewhat of a spokesperson for um, lots of black people in Britain. I resist the term the black community because I feel like it's just too nebulous for that. But when he comes out and speaks about, for example, the African Cup of Nations not receiving the respect it deserves, we're really grateful for that because he has the status and the vantage to speak like that. And I think we have seen like a huge, a huge um, uh, maturity in him. And I, I do think he was, yeah, uh, fulfilling a role that, do you know what, to be honest, I feel like a lot of black guys uh, listening to this or, or, or people who have um, black friends listening to this would say, you know, there is this, I don't know. Uh, I, I know there, there are a few, um, there, there definitely is a capacity in black men in order to appear less threatening to be the comic relief. And maybe that's what Ian Wright was doing in the beginning. But now, yeah, he definitely understands his responsibility and his and his purpose. And he also exists in a space where we kind of allow him, um, and this isn't something that's allowed to all, to all black figures, to be complex. We allow the contradictions in him and even the mistakes. And we can all see and know his life and still take him to our heart. So he, he occupies that space as well, which I think is really rare for a black public figure. Usually you have to exemplify a kind of form of um, excellence or exceptionalism. And um, there are boxes yeah, to be ticked, essentially. Yeah, yeah. He breaks that mold and he breaks that down. And yeah, he's somebody, as I said, who's, who's, who is definitely going to make that possible for the next black pundit who transitions into the same space that he's occupying now. Yeah. It almost mirrors in a way without wanting to talk too much about right because there's so many characters we can talk about from the book but that you know initial translation from being a player into a pundit and trying to fit into the punditry world as best he could and maybe going lighter than you possibly should have done in terms of tone like there's a line that jumps out from um, the description of him in the book whereby during his first goal uh, for Arsenal against Leicester like his celebration is like a pure uh, you know pure encapsulation of black expression and that isn't necessarily something that existed in the in the footballing world before Ian Wright, because you think of the, the players that were involved in football beforehand, they were almost making a real point of trying to fit into what was essentially just a white world. Whereas Wright was, as you mentioned, comfortable enough in his own skin to just go, listen, I am a, a black man from South London and this is how I, we act. And I'm not going to shirk that on the pitch. Exactly, yeah. I feel like... Um if you look at old uh, gold celebrations from other players who played at that point, they would, I don't know, yeah, mimic the celebrations to look at that specifically of the white players. And it would be, you know, so they would basically con constrain themselves in a way that he, and I think as well, because uh, obviously Ian Wright came late to the game, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame the Premier League Hall of Fame today and I saw his tweet and he said look you have to understand like I came to the game late I never thought I was going to be here so I feel like his blackness and the exuberance that comes from just feeling so I suppose grateful to be there without trying to sound um condescending but he might um suggest that himself he was nearly yeah, 28 that, when he signed for Arsenal for God's yeah. sake I think he'd every right to be somewhat yeah yeah, you know, yeah. Feeling of, of gratitude that things had come so late to him in his career but, he was messaged by other players. I, I don't. I think Robbie Earl uh, did a. He was on. I think he does NBC. I'm not yeah. too sure, but he he broke down into tears when he was talking about Ian Wright because he said like I don't think you understand like how important it was for me to see you 
doing that. Because you can imagine a lot of these players, and again, I, I go back to society and I draw a parallel to uh, black people who are in overwhelmingly white workspaces, you straightjacket yourself, you keep your head down, but that takes that takes a psychological toll. And whether Ian Wright knew that or not, I'm not too sure, but he definitely allowed um, other players and people in society to say I'm I'm black and I'm British at the same time. But as a result of the amalgamation of those two identities, I behave like this and you're going to accept it. The ball's the best, number one. It's the GOAT of sports apps. Talk about the greatest of all time. Big Joe's the greatest of all time. He's the GOAT. We know it. <laughs> I, I'm going to say right. I'm the Djokovic of this scenario. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Download the OTB sports app now. Is football a more welcoming world now for not just for black players, but also for, for black supporters, black journalists, black broadcasters, whatever it might be. Is it an easier place to occupy now or does it feel like the otherness is different and that the expectations are slightly different or that, as you mentioned there, there might be, you have to reach a certain level of exceptionalism to, to, to fit in, as it were? I think that's an interesting question. I think there has been, I would describe the shift as incremental rather than um, than a large one. I was speaking to a black broadcaster last year who, who works on a lot of um, uh, TV channels over here, speaking to her, and she said that when she's in the in the newsroom or, or, or when she's in like a press box, or whatever, she does still feel like the odd one out. She does still feel like she has to kind of be slightly inhibited and don't, don't make too much noise because she's a black woman. Um, and so based on that testimony, I think we can say things haven't become that much more welcoming. And I still think there is like a, um, a hegemony that exists. Um, in terms of supporters, yeah, I, I go to Crystal Palace games a lot, um, always have done. Um, and I go to Arsenal games a lot. I think Arsenal is the exception, so maybe I'll discount them because having had as many black players as they had mm. and where they are in London, you see, you know, a huge diversity in uh, their fan base but yeah I go to Crystal Palace games and I've been to a few um, low league games and you do see more black fans and I personally don't feel threatened going to games but I think there are um, there is like a historical connotation there for, for why some black fans don't still don't go to games um, so yeah I'd, I'd say yeah not to, yeah I think there's been an incremental shift and you you might get more black people now saying I'll go to games, but in the media landscape, I still think it's overwhelmingly white. And most of the producers for TV shows or, or radio and stuff will probably still be white. And um, a lot of news desks up and down the country uh, will still find no black sports writers or sports writers of color. Um, that's that's still a big issue that they need to somehow tackle. On, in in terms of um, like you touched on on Palace there, like South London is obviously referenced in the book to to a huge degree. The influence that it's had on uh, I guess black experience within the football world over the past, jeez, it, it's I was going to say like it go, it goes back to the likes of Michael Thomas and Paul Davis and, and David Rocastle and Arsenal, but it's grown so much since then that you know it, its claws are pretty much everywhere uh, in the yeah. Premier League and, and beyond now at this stage. South London has produced so many excellent black football figures over the last while it's it's just it's insane really it is yeah it is it is it is and sometimes it will just be like a like a five mile patch so like between yeah. Brixton Thornton Heath and Streatham the players that have emerged 
from that region. Uh, yeah, and you know, Jaden Sancho comes from Kennington. Um, Nathaniel Klein, uh, I believe, is Brixton. Um, and now, if you look at Palace now, I was watching them against Chelsea, and I think they had like six or seven black players in the starting eleven, and uh, majority of those were British players. There is something about this region, and something to be said for the community. Um, the communities that have been formed here, because obviously black people flowed into South London. Um, so there's obviously a migrational um, element there. We've got a huge uh, build-up of, uh, you know, West African and Caribbean communities here. But what those communities did was, I suppose, they formed football teams and they formed um, structures that, football structures, I should say, which support um, the club's, and that the clubs um, extract players from and bring into their academy. So I think that's partly it. And I, just, I think there is a cultural element where I suppose a lot of people in South London, I know I did, aspire to be footballers because it feels closer because there are, you know, there is such a large contingent of us playing. So you do tend to think, you know, I can do it too. Yeah. Um, and there, And obviously just because there are so many clubs here and so many scouts watching all the teams that, exist here but yeah an Ethiopia's piece um really goes into detail in looking at um why that is and also the role that a lot of black coaches play in nurturing those players and offering that that structure and that foundation to be to be successful really because i suppose maybe the archetype of of, of a coach that exists is kind of old school, older white guy. And there's a lot of like young black guys in the community who are doing amazing work and funneling these players into professional football. There seems to be more of a conversation in terms of, of South London. I don't mean that overtly in the sense of speaking, but in terms of a back and forth and pathways being offered one way and the other for players to, to graduate through clubs, be they big or small, and for the coaching to come downwards and try and help to, I guess, bring football to the community as well. That seems to be more of a a two-way street in South London and it will be pretty much anywhere else in England at the moment. I think so. If you look at what Palace do, they do so much in the community to not only foster good relationships with feeder clubs, but the community at large, like more more broadly. Um, when I when I was young, Palace used to do kids for a quid and I think they still do that now. So they're always looking at the next generation and trying to build those ties because I think they understand that the relationship is symbiotic and it is two-way and it's ne- it's necessary for, they need uh, the community as much as the community needs them and they don't feel distinct and separated. So yeah, I completely agree. That conversation is, um, is ongoing and really fruitful. So in essence, like when you see bigger clubs, like I, I don't like in terms of the London experience, say like Chelsea or an Arsenal, is is that they become so big that they're not necessarily of the community anymore. Where we have a Crystal Palace who very much are from the community, and Brentford as well, and West London will be the same. Whereby they are very much representative of where they come from. Where you have, you know, say Liverpool, Manchester United, they're so big, it's not necessarily just about their area anymore. Yeah, I'd add to that, say QPR, Millwall, um, are a, a, a brilliant community club, Charlton as well. Um, if we look at the players they produce and they've got um, so Jason Yule's a coach down there and obviously Chris Powell was there. So you see this this lineage, but yeah, these clubs are bastions in the community. They understand that they are representative of the community and they enable people from the community to feel proud. Mm. 
of where they come from um and they are you know they're kind of entrenched um in a way that yeah i i i think it's true um as i said i go to arsenal games and um i don't feel as connected to arsenal because of their largesse because of their size and also maybe if you look at the players that arsenal haven't i would say haven't signed um of late even in the Wenger years they overlooked a lot of the players in london that have went gone on to thrive at other clubs so if you look at you know um michael elise is at palace now but he was in london um joe gomez obviously went to liverpool nathaniel klein went to liverpool these these players didn't go um to a club like arsenal i don't know uh they weren't looking in that direction anymore um hopefully that that will shift back but i do think that is partly connected to not being as present or influential in the communities located immediately around them i guess yeah it's like it's something that you know to a degree uh to a larger degree i guess happens here because football is such a, a local thing here in ireland that clubs have no other option than to be present in the community and to try and interact with the community and bring it bring it up as much as the locals can try and bring the club up as well. Um, it's probably difficult. It's probably like picking a favorite child, uh, in terms of favorite pieces from the book. But is there one in particular or a couple in particular that stand out to you? It's tough. Uh, it is really tough because I feel like there are so many that do something completely radically new. Mm. Um, Ineffiox pieces is brilliant, and I think it's it's really important to document and chronicle what he has done because there is just so little out there that takes the time to sensitively archive this work. I would say I can't I can't pick a favorite. I won't pick a favorite, <laughs> but I will say um, Sana Qureshi, um, who's a brilliant writer. She wrote a piece about black Muslim footballers, and I've never read a piece like that before. And the the kind of specificity uh, she goes into with uh, talking to... So she flipped it. Rather than talking to a, a, a player, she spoke to black Muslim football fans, and they told her what it means to see black Muslim players succeed in the league and to see them uh, practice or you know, pray the Ayat al-Kursi prayer or to say, um, sorry, to practice Salat after um, a goal. And they kind of, and how, how much research black Muslim fans do to find out who the Muslim players are, because obviously that might not always be in their Wikipedia page, for example. And then when they find that out, they kind of hold those players closer. Yeah even if they don't support the team that that player plays for. And I just thought that was a really interesting detail and kind of spoke to identity and how it can be formed and how it can be protected, especially when we look at a lot of um, subtle and over Islamophobia that kind of streaks a lot of um, press and the media, wider media, so yeah. And it's become a more visible thing in the last while. Like it, it, it would have been difficult to point out before if a player was breaking their fast for Ramadan like but now we've routinely seen the likes of Wesley Fafana or Sadio Mane or Mo Salah or whatever who would be observing uh, go off for that minute or two to you know break the Ramadan fast and then come back on and it's pointed out and it just becomes a normal facet of the game having you know prayer rooms etc at stadiums has become a facet of the game for a lot of clubs and it's just making things regular and as normal as they are for these communities I guess helps everybody along really exactly and I think we should be in no doubt really as well that the players um, whether that's um, 
being hands on, I suppose, and and I know at Newcastle there was a contingent of Muslim players for a while. Uh, Denver Bar, Hatem, Benafa, Czech Teote, may he rest in peace, um, and a few others who um, asked for a prayer room and Newcastle didn't have it. And then that cultural change catches on, doesn't mm. it? In the same way that we now see sensory rooms at grounds for autistic fans, and what that does is, you know, people talk a lot about inclusivity and representation. And they can almost become woolly terms that aren't actually attached to real change. But uh, yeah, when you can make Muslim people feel comfortable going to a ground and be, you know, and feel seen um, in a positive way, then you're going to improve the sport and you're going to bring more people to the table. Um, and yeah, as you said, it is completely normal. And Sana makes this contrast in the essay where she says, when Demba Bar. Um, uh, you know, touched his forehead to the turf after I think he'd scored. Um, Alan Pardew uh, kind of subtly hinted at, I don't know, he, he seemed to be slightly uncomfortable with the fact that, hey, you know, I've got this player I've paid money for and he's not eating or drinking. Like, is he going to be sharp? And then Rogers, by contrast, is complimentary and commending these 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 players, which I suppose makes Islam feel less alien to broader society who maybe aren't as familiar with it as you know, I am what you might be, for example, you know. I listen, um, it's a fantastic book, Callum, and, and uh, really congratulations on, on pulling it all together. As you mentioned, herding cats, trying to get all these uh, different pieces and all these essays together, but they do form a cohesive whole and there's a lot to be good to be taken from it and it is a fantastic work. So congratulations. The new formation is what the book is called, How Black Footballers Shaped the Modern Game, and it is out today. Callum Jacobs, thank you so much for taking time out to speak to us this evening. Thanks so much for having me, Richie. Really enjoyed it. Anytime at all. Football on Off The Ball With Sky Watch Premier League, Women's Super League, EFL, Scottish Premiership and much more Live on Sky Sports